Hello, my name is Jamila Rizvi and this is Anonymous Was a Woman, a Future Women and Penguin podcast. This is a show about books about women, books written for women, and about the women who write those books. My co-host is Astrid Edwards from the Garrett podcast, and our guest today is Melina Marchetta. Our theme for today's episode is nostalgia. Now, I am pretty sure there isn't much in the world that makes me feel as nostalgic as a good book that I love to revisit again and again. Astrid, do you feel the same? Utterly. There is no better feeling than choosing to go into a great and favourite piece of fiction. One of the things I love about great quality fiction, particularly fiction I read during those years where I was kind of figuring out who I was. There is no way to say that sentence without sounding so trite. But in those kind of late teenage years, even your early 20s, when you're kind of trying to figure out who you are and what your place in the world is. Some of the books I read in that period made such an impression on me that I now feel nostalgic for places that I've actually never been to, but my favourite protagonists have. I could not agree more. I have that same feeling. And that is one of the things that fiction offers us. We can travel from the comfort of our own couch or bed or, you know, wherever we are reading. We can go anywhere and experience anything. And like you, Jamila, I have this beautiful sense of nostalgia that I can dip back into my favorite places or I can dip back into a favorite part of my life if I go and reread something I read previously many years ago. Absolutely. It's not just about what's happening on the page. It's about what was happening for you while you were reading that particular book for the first time. And Astrid, I am thrilled that today our guest is the incomparable Melina Machetta, whose work absolutely defined my teenage years. We're going to be talking to her about place and time and the tools that an author uses to create those for us. It is to my very great delight that our guest for the next segment is Melina Marchetta, who is well known to so many Australian readers for a whole bunch of simply glorious works. We've been talking about nostalgia today and as a child I fell in love with Saving Francesca and looking for Ali Brandy and as an adult I have fell in love with The Piper's Son and Finnegan of the Rock. I am not going to stand here and list off all of Melina's wonderful achievements. Just know she is one of our most awarded authors. Welcome. Thank you. I feel like I could have gone on for a lot longer and embarrassed everyone, including myself. We are talking today about nostalgia and I wanted to begin by asking you, when you sit down to craft a new work, how do you think about creating that sense of time and place? What are the kind of tools that you use to give that to your readers? I suppose it depends on the novel um, because, you know, with Ella Brandy, I always say that I wrote that book about the 70s. I probably wrote it in the late 80s and it was marketed in the 90s. I suppose with that book, I didn't think too much outside that place, except every time I referred to a band or a musician, I was told, keep that out because it will date the book. So it was my first introduction on how music and how references can date a book. And it's why I understand why so many books, especially YA ones, 
they go very nostalgic and classic when they're referring to um, music and it's because their editors have probably said the same thing to them. Sometimes people don't want to be reminded of a particular time, you know, 10 years on. And it was interesting because I remember when it came to a particular U2, um, someone saying to me at the time, well, you know, no one's going to know who they are in 10 years' time. And the same for Madonna and... And I just think, well, I'm glad that I worked out back then that they were going to be there for the long haul. So Some things never go out of fashion. Melina, we've already mentioned uh, place and time and how you didn't want Alibrandi to date even before publication. We are now sitting here chatting to you about nostalgia. You've written many books, I- including Alibrandi, which you know Jam and I read as teenagers. What is something that you have noticed that your readers always bring up with you? Like what draws your readers to your work and the places that you set your work? I think it's community and friendships. I always think it's going to be the romance and I don't set out to write a romance, but I do set out to write love stories about people. It doesn't have to be a love story between, you know, a man and a woman or a woman and a woman. It doesn't have to be that. It's a love story between a family. And I always find that what they relate to the most, and I think of two specific, um, um, I won't say books because, you know, there's the, the cluster of Saving Francesca, The Piper's Son and Dalhousie. They have some of the same characters and it's the, that friendship group that really I think attracts a particular reader or a reread of it. And once or twice, actually probably more than once or twice when I'm at a signing table, someone or someone's mother who is sending, you know, my book to their daughter overseas will say, my daughter is, you know, in her 20s now. She's in London for four years and she took two books with her and it could be Ella Brundi and Francesca and it's to remind her of home and familiarity and I just that that to me is just such a beautiful compliment because I think everyone's searching for solace and the idea that my work can bring solace to someone is is incredible. It's a magnificent achievement and it's it's interesting hearing you reflect on the romantic relationships through much of your work and yet I know what stays with me are the non-romantic relationships it's it's more the relationships of family that you put on the page and the relationships between friends that have felt that I perhaps have the most nostalgia for in a sense I wondered for you how you feel in your own life's nostalgia when it comes to writing a novel when you think of one of your works do you think about what was going on in your life at the time and did your life bleed onto the page in any way or did the page bleed into your life in any way? Yeah, I think that someone could definitely analyse my life based on a particular book of that period. Um, When I wrote Ella Brundy, I was still living at home. I was writing that novel from um, the room that I had in my bed, my, my family home from when I was young. And I think that that says a lot about the themes of that particular book. And when I was writing Saving Francesca, I was you know, years older than um, the protagonist. I was actually the same age as the protagonist's uh, mother and I was in the workforce. I was working at an all-boys school and whether I liked it or not, that story was going to be a reflection of being female in a male world. I wasn't necessarily a 17-year-old girl, but I was still female in a male world. 
you know, I always say to people, feel free to analyse my life and the connection it has with the particular books. I think it's hard just to keep it out and you don't do it, you don't ever do something to, you know, teach people a lesson or you want to write about yourself. It's somehow, it's, I think you used a very interesting word, bleed. It just gets in there. You know, the last two books are certainly a reflection of certain aspects of that, you know, bringing up other people's children or, you know, all of these things. So I think that, you know, I didn't decide to write about an eight-year-old or a six-year-old or a two-year-old, but I certainly wrote about some of the themes that were coming out of that experience. I think it's hard to keep it out unless you're just kind of really strict about this is what I want to write about and I'm not going to let anything interfere. That might take away from from the stories that you tell, though, if you did that, Melina. I know, but I because it, it sounds strange that I, you know, I, I always wonder what I'm like as a writer because I'd like to think of myself as, um, you know, organic and with less control but in another way I do know how my stories are going to begin and end I just don't know how I'm going to get there and how I get there is through these you know what's happening in my life you know even with what's happening in our lives now I'm writing a a a seven little kind of book series that it's the days of the week so what Zola did on Monday what Zola did on Tuesday and three of them come out this year and I just handed in what Zola did on Thursday and as much as all those little books still have a relationship between her and her, you know, her nonna, I did find myself in that book, in the fourth book that I wrote during quarantine, there was such an emphasis on looking after older people. And I, of course, that's coming from, you know, what's happening. I didn't want to write about quarantine. I didn't want to write about, you know, anything like that. But I just found that that you know, our big focus at the moment is keeping my mother healthy and, you know, what has to happen around that. And so it didn't surprise me that that book, it's not about keeping out um, old people healthy, but it's just about having old people in your life and in my child's life. So it somehow creeps in. You just can't avoid it. It is going to be fascinating watching uh, the books that start to be published after COVID-19 and how what is happening around the world and this great lockdown that we're experiencing does change the way we tell stories or the emphasis within those stories. Melina, as a reader, one of the things that your writing and your books do for me that I don't always find elsewhere is create the place of Sydney and particularly inner West Sydney. So I grew up in Sydney. I was there until I was 30 and I still miss Sydney. I live in Melbourne now. And you managed to convey what it feels like to walk down the street in various, you know, inner West suburbs in in Sydney. And for me, it's one of the most beautiful things you can give me. I feel like I'm there for a moment in time when I miss the place. So thank you. Oh, thank you. I remember reading Saving Francesca as a teenager and romanticising wanting to move to Sydney and live in Glee <laughs> and the kinds of inner west suburbs that you spoke about. So for the Canberra girl, that was the cool place, I promise. One of the things that I also remember sticking with Saving Francesca was I have such strong memories of where I was in my life and what place I was. That book was one of my Easter books. I had a teacher mother who always made us have books as well as chocolate for Easter. And I remember the smell of the fire and I can take myself back to that moment of teenagehood through the experience of that book. Do you have books from your teenage years or your early 20s, which is what we've been focused on in this episode, that take you back to points in your life where your memories are framed around what you were reading? 
I think mostly when I was younger, like I, I always talk about my, you know, love, love, love for Anne of Green Gables. And, of course, if I had to go beyond before that, it would have to be the Enid Blyton books. Um, and I remember specifically when I was given certain Enid Blyton books and doing exactly what you described. Like I, you know, there, there was just nothing more exciting than knowing that you had all those books to get through. And both those, you know, as, you know, you could be critical about the writing of Enid Blyton, but the stories that I was most attracted to being the naughtiest girl stories, the boarding school stories, and in Anne of Green Gables, this outsider who had no one coming into a community that embraced her, alienated her, embraced her, alienated her. And I think that's always stuck with me with my own storytelling, but I do remember it was, it felt like a very comforting time in my life. So it's, I don't remember specifics about where I was, but that feeling of feeling like I'm home when I'm reading them, you know, it, that stays with me. So subconsciously, and trust me, as you get older, you forget the details a lot more, but you don't forget the feeling. And I think it's it's more that. That was such a great description of nostalgia, Melina, the idea that we might forget the details, but we never forget that feeling. Melina, thank you for sharing a little bit of your afternoon with us and making us feel very nostalgic. Thank you. Astrid, it is with a little bit of trepidation that I introduce our next book, which is the wonderful Bridget Jones's Diary, written by Helen Fielding, since made into some pretty terrible movies. But we are going to set those aside and focus on the words that were put on the page. We are indeed. And I have to start this section, Jamila, with a caveat. I read Bridget Jones's Diary and I did see those terrible movies and it made utterly no impression on me. So you are going to have to sell this to me. Oh, wow. So this isn't a love or a hate thing. There's not even like a passionate feeling about this book. It's just a, a nonchalance from you. It's, it, I draw an utter blank. It is a nothing for me. I have some kind of vague memories of maybe eating chocolate in bed and some underpants that were too large and that's it. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Firstly, that devastates me. And look, Margaret Atwood, it may not be, but seriously, show me a woman who grew up in the 90s or the noughties who isn't familiar with this kind of stream of consciousness, mental clutter madness that is depicted in Bridget Jones's diary. One of the reasons I think this book works so well and is so compelling is because it was first written as a series of columns in a London newspaper. Helen Fielding had to write this chapter by chapter. Each chapter had to be self-contained and in itself it had to be funny, warm, witty and wise. It's set up of course as a diary and it begins with Bridget our protagonist, listing down her daily entries for calories consumed, cigarettes smoked, alcohol units that she's drunk, and then sometimes little extras like how many boyfriends she's had at that particular moment in time. I get that this is not the kind of book that sits on your shelf along with the grand titles that the Folio Society will one day release, but to me, It is so completely irreverent. The characters really stuck with me for quite a long time. And I think as a exercise in social observation of a period of time, I think it's really, really skillful. 
I think you do have a point, Jamila. So even though I didn't get into it, I was very much aware of the phenomenon that was Bridget Jones around me. So it was a cultural moment, a pop cultural moment. I mean, you always had reference to Bridget Jones, whether it was the movie or the original books or the columns, uh, and they just existed there because people did engage and it did matter to people and it did touch that moment in time, that chaotic stream of consciousness, as you called it, that was so prevalent. For me, I think it was also one of the first books that I read that put on the page that kind of not just mental stream of consciousness but the pressures from society outside that became part of my stream of consciousness. There's a quote I grabbed from uh, Bridget Jones's diary that I want to read to you. Bridget says, I am a child of cosmopolitan culture. I have been traumatised by supermodels and too many quizzes and know that neither my personality nor my body is up to it if left to its own devices. I cannot take the pressure. And to me, the prose that Fielding uses and the way she uses the voice of Bridget and her constantly feeling like she's not good enough at work, not good enough for men, not good enough for her parents and she finds salvation only in her friends. I hate realness as a concept but there was a realness of that to me. So again, noting my ignorance, is this based on a loose retelling of Pride and Prejudice? (laughs) That is a very good question. So Fielding originally wrote two books. Her first is Bridget Jones's Diary, and it is very, very loosely based on the plot of Pride and Prejudice. And actually her follow-up is very, very loosely based on the plot of Persuasion. And she gives nod to this by naming her central romantic character, Mr. Darcy. But there's a real cute tongue in cheek to it. The very loose references to Pride and Prejudice aren't what drives the plot here, but they do give us these really cute callbacks. And I'm going to quote nonstop while we do this chat. There's a really early quote where Bridget first meets her Mr. Darcy and she's at a Christmas function. And she says, it's pretty ridiculous to me to be called Mr. Darcy and to stand on your own looking snooty at a party. It's kind of like being called Heathcliff and insisting on spending the entire evening in the garden shouting Kathy and banging your head against a tree. So Jam, tell me, if you could sum up Bridget Jones's diary and why it appeals to you in one sentence, how would you do it? I think it is the power of the unspoken thought. And we've become very good now as women, particularly with the advent of social media, of looking behind the curtain and showing people the reality of our lives rather than projecting perfection the way that women's magazines and media and culture more generally has expected of us. Bridget Jones's diary captures the way I think that modern women we kind of teeter between this like I am woman feminist independence and at the same time we've been socialised with these girly desires and to think of ourselves as the object of affection for men primarily and that being our reason for being. So we're pushing back so hard against that way we've been raised and what culture still tells us. And at the same time, sometimes we give into it. And I think it's all that complexity and messiness coupled with a bit of fun that makes Bridget Jones such a glorious character for the ages. So she is a unique character, but also she exists across a few platforms. Now, were there two or three books in the series? There were two originally, and then about a decade later, Fielding wrote a third book, uh, which is called Bridget Jones's Baby. Again, a massive departure from the films. If you've watched the films and 
thinks you think you've read the books, then nah, 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 nah. Bridget Jones's baby is actually quite sad. There's a lot of uh, really mournful content in it. I don't want to give away the plot, but uh, there's a revelation quite early on that makes the book a lot harder around the edges, I think, than the earlier two. And you do get the sense that the author and the protagonist have both grown up a lot between books two and books three. And I think that makes sense, not only because I think our authors are entitled to evolve in their style and how they think about the world and how they conceptualize their characters, but also the audience has grown up. We've grown up with Helen Fielding's characters. And instead of being single women in our 20s or 30s, those same readers are now in their 50s or 60s. They have grown-up children. They are widows. They are dealing with illness and the death of parents. It's a completely different stage of life. And, of course, we've evolved, just like Bridget. All right, Jamila, today I want to introduce you to The Secret History by Donna Tartt. Have you read it? I admit I have not. The Goldfinch I have read and The Secret History has been sitting in my home and has moved with me through several homes and never been opened. Well, it's my goal in the next few minutes to convince you to pick up your copy of The Secret History. So it was originally published in 1992 and it is Donna Tartt's first work. It is a story of six classic students uh, at a university in North America. It's Richard, Henry, Francis, twins, aptly named Charles and Camilla, and Bunny, dear old Bunny. And The Secret History is an exploration of friendship in the kind of academic context, you know, on the university campus context, but very much against the classics, the original canon of the Western tradition. Now, it's nostalgic for me, and I really want to convince you to love it, Jam, because I was a classic student. I literally had all of my classes in the quadrangle at Sydney University, me and the four other students sitting in my professor's actual study uh, as we sipped tea and, you know, went through Virgil and Cicero and Caesar. And not only is the secret history nostalgic for me, it's also slightly aspirational. I studied Latin all the way through my high school years in the 90s and I read the secret history then and I thought I'm going to grow up and I'm going to be like these characters in The Secret History. So that says a lot about me, Jamila, because in the opening two pages, you find out that five of those students kill the other one. It's like a reverse murder mystery where you know they did it and uh, then you kind of have to read to figure out why. Okay, so I'm not so much going to play devil's advocate because I feel like that would require me to have read the book. I am, however, going to push you a little bit on your love of this one because you obliterated me for adoring Bridget Jones's diary just a moment ago. So from what you said so far, it sounds like a cheap murder thriller for really snobby rich kids. Is that accurate? Okay, so some of the criticism about The Secret History uh, does go there and that is partly a reflection on how the book can be read. It is also partly a reflection on Donna Tartt and her uh, some of her biographical details. Donna Tartt actually was part of the graduating class of Brett Easton Ellis. She was part of that literary brat pack of the late 1980s and 1990s and there was definitely an air of snobbery around there. I'm talking like you know, expensive cigarette holders and not talking to anybody who they didn't think was as smart as them kind of thing. So that is a criticism. However, I am going to launch past your criticism and I am going to try to sell it to you. So one of the reasons why it appealed to me 
actually harks back to a discussion we had with Kerajan Dovi in our second episode where we discussed uh, lust. And the three of us all quite agreed that there's like an erotic joy in learning and a meeting of minds and intellectual engagement can be really hot. And for me, studying the classics, my God, what I am telling you all about my psyches, I may regret this, but for me, studying the classics and not just reading the translations, but actually picking apart the words of Caesar or Virgil or Horace or Cicero, all the rest of them, that experience is what I had in real life. And that was reflected back to me, that joy of learning and how far it can take you beyond your everyday mores and morals and what you might do in your real life. I loved it. And it goes back to that, the dangerousness of the canon. It's been loved and hated for millennia and it's so fraught and it's a bunch of dead white guys. But at the same time, it reflects part of the cultural background that I was raised in and that we have inherited as part of the Western tradition. And then of course, it is a bit of a thriller. I mean, you have five students all intellectually engaged with each other, sleeping with each other, in love with each other, and uh, they kill one of their own. And there's some narrative tension for you, Jamila. Astrid, uh, if you take away the classics, it sounds a little bit like an episode of Gossip Girl. However, benefit of the doubt, my question is, if you are someone who has not read the classics, if you are someone who didn't study literature at university, are you going to get as much enjoyment out of this book as perhaps you did? That is a great question and one I am clearly not qualified to answer. I would say, however, that it is beautifully written. This was, uh, as I said before, this was Tart's debut novel and it was such a good it was it was a bestseller and it was so well received uh, and made such an immediate impact she actually started to be referred to as like a contemporary jd salinger so you know salinger published the catcher in the rye and that was all he bothered to do and yet he made a contribution to uh, english literature in the 20th century and that's how good and how well received uh, the secret history was. She has since written two books. She tends to, you know, publish one book a decade, and all of them have been very literary, but also wildly popular and very good sellers. So she is giving many, many readers something, and it's a bit dangerous and it's a bit snobby. But at the same time, she's a female writer daring to attack that old ivory tower of academia. Mostly it's guys, mostly it's men, mostly it's white men. And she dares to be a female with some female voices in her books. And for that, I really thank her. Only you, Astrid, has a go at the author of Catcher in the Rye for not doing much else (laughs) with this time. (laughs) Uh, But let's leave that one aside. And I'm really interested in why you chose to bring this book for the subject of nostalgia. Clearly, you have some personal nostalgia here about your literature classes at university, but there also feels like books and films and television series more generally that are set in and around universities or specifically around that period in life, age 18 to sort of 23, 24, they do tend to be hugely popular for so many people. Is it because that's our, I don't know, personal golden age? Is it because that's when we're most beautiful? Oh my God, I hope it's for a lot more than that. I think it is, those years are very formative for all of us. I mean, you know, 18 to 23, 18 to 25, that is when you very much stop being any kind of child and you really have to have some kind of uh, responsibility in life if you hadn't already taken it before. You're also deliberately exposed at universities to 
all sorts of wild ideas. And, you know, that's the point of university, right? You, you, you pick up ideas and you try them and you, you keep the good ones. And so when we think back at that time, hopefully we had at least some good experiences whilst we were studying and or with the people who were around us when we were studying. I would also like to say there is no better thing in life, no more powerful influence on a person's development than a great teacher. And I am nostalgic for the the three great teachers I had in my life, all of whom taught me a dead language, Latin, but really molded the person who is talking to you on this podcast today. I think that is a beautiful way to end this segment because when we talk about nostalgia for our school days or our university days or our TAFE days, whatever they might be, when we were doing most of our learning and when we were most vulnerable to the influences of others, to have a wonderful teacher during that period is truly, truly a gift. So I hope this segment has given all of you listening the chance to be a little bit nostalgic for those great teachers in your lives. Astrid, it is recommendations time where you, the most well-read person I know, bar my mum, tells me, the person who has a very impressive architecturally designed bedside table stack of books that I'm not quite sure how it stands up, you tell me what I should be reading. So let us begin with a recommendation you've got for a trilogy. Yes, I would love to recommend to everybody listening Hilary Mantel's Cromwell trilogy. So that is Wolf Hall, published in 2009, Bring Up the Bodies, published in 2012, and The Mirror and the Light, just published recently in 2020. Now, Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies did something phenomenal. They both won the Booker Prize for Fiction. Now, you might be asking, as someone listening to a podcast by women and about uh, stories by women, why on earth I am recommending a trilogy about uh, Thomas Cromwell, a historical figure, his rise to power and his role in the court of Henry VIII. Well, that's because, firstly, it's done beautiful. It is an addictive fictional story that takes us to a place and a time that many people find uh interesting or have a form of nostalgia for it is obviously historical fiction going back to a very famous time in English history. But also I want people to read the work of Hilary Mantel. She has actually been uh, named Dame Hilary Mantel because of her services to literature, but also she's a female author who has reached the height of international literary fiction. And sometimes she's criticised for her appearance. And I can't think of anything more offensive that one of the best writers writing today gets pulled up because of how she looks. Well, that is as good a sell as any for me to go and spend a lot of money on all of her books to try and show it to the man. Uh, Thank you for that recommendation. Now you are going to take us to 1970s Australia, which is a very different time in history. What is your second nostalgic recommendation? So this is a very different form of nostalgia and a very different type of book recommendation. But for those of you who haven't read it, I would like to suggest you read Puberty Blues by Gabrielle Carey and Kathy Lett. Have you read it, Jem? I have. I actually read it many years ago, though. So I read it just out of my own teenage years. It was one of those books that my mum passed over to me. I'm guessing that uh, she enjoyed it and then decided I would too. But since then, as an adult, I've actually been able to interview Kathy Lett a couple of times as a journalist and have appeared on panels with her. And 
I don't think I've ever met an author whose voice on the page is so authentically their own in real life. Why do you love this book? Well, uh, the voice on the page is incredibly strong. It is a story of Deb and Sue in their late teenage years as they're learning about themselves, friendship, lust, sex and what society lets them do and does not let them do uh, as young women in 70s Australia. I have to say parts of the book shocked me. This was before my time, an experience of women growing up in Sydney before my time and I'm very much glad that it had changed a bit by the time I got to my teenage years but it's just really strong writing You know, it's that time when you look back in Australia and it was ice creams on the beach and it was before the ozone hole and it was safe to hang out on the, you know, in the sun all the time. And, you know, you left in the morning and came back late at night and it was, it was okay to do that before social media and the internet. And oh, it was just almost a time of innocence, even though there is nothing innocent about this book at all. That is one of the most vivid and glorious descriptions I have heard of Puberty Blues and I have heard a few of them. I would argue that it was still not that safe to hang out on the beach tanning even in the 1970s. Skin cancer is always a thing, folks, so we encourage you to slip, slop, slap. We also encourage you to visit or revisit some of these absolutely beautiful works of fiction that will transport you to another time. Anonymous Was a Woman is a podcast made in partnership between Future Women and Penguin Books. We're produced by Bad Producer Productions. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find Anonymous Was a Woman. And while you're there, you may as well subscribe and that way you will never miss an episode. Bye.